Federico Antoni had an extensive career in marketing, working for retail and e-commerce companies like Mercado Libre, but he found his true calling in the venture capital world. Over a decade ago, Federico founded AllVP, a Mexican venture capital fund focused on solving the hardest problems in Spanish-speaking Latin America. AllVP now has a portfolio of over 40 startups. Their emblematic portfolio company is Corner Shop, sold to Uber. Now AllVP is preparing for its fourth fund, and Fede divides his time between AllVP, boards of multiple startups, and lectures at Stanford. Today, Fede and I talk about his leap from retail and teaching to the startup and venture capital segments. And what was the Mexican startup ecosystem like when AllVP started? What gaps have been filled since then? And how the firm faces the macroeconomic uncertainty in Latin America as a feature and not as a bug? What does AllVP mean by team market fit? Its plans for a fourth fund? And Fede's view on the current market landscape and the development of the startup culture in Latin America. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. Hola, Brian. Hola, welcome. It's been about 12 hours since we were since we saw each other. So great time last night, great dinner, great people. Francisco was very kind to take us all out to a nice dinner. Did you imagine 10 years ago that you know you would have that like high of caliber investors, founders? Think back to that those 10 years ago where you just have a spontaneous dinner with these you know, titans of investing and, and great founders. Uh, did you imagine that? Uh, absolutely not, Brian. Uh, so if, if we had made a, a similar dinner uh, 10 years back, uh, the table would, would have been much smaller. The AUM, the assets under management of the folks around the table would have been much more smaller, maybe a hundred times smaller. And definitely the collective valuations of the entrepreneurs seated around the table. So for everybody listening, we had uh, many of the Mexican unicorns um, around the table. So the, the collective valuation would have also been 100x lower. So absolutely not. It was a pleasure. It is, it is always exciting and, 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 and frankly motivating to meet with all the investors and, and particularly the successful founders um, so, so yeah, very happy about uh, where we are right now. Yeah, it's quite the evolution. And uh, speaking of evolution, let's just take a little, you know, trip down memory lane here. Uh, you know, you had an extensive career in marketing, you know, for retail and e-commerce brands before diving into this venture capital world that now that you're fully immersed in, what made you change industries? You know, going back over 10 years ago, uh, you, you know, you created a crowdfunding platform in Fondeadora. And then you also launched an accelerator, Numa Mexico. So talk a little bit more about that transition. Of course, every, everything happened actually or started actually a, a little bit longer ago. It was in 20, 20, uh, 2008 when I started uh, teaching. So I was, I was invited to teach uh, a university level course on entrepreneurship. Basically, I, I used what I previously learned at the Stanford GSB uh, for my MBA, the entrepreneurship courses, and basically adapted those and started teaching at the university. At the time, I was the CEO of a fashion retail company uh, uh, quoted in the Mexican Stock Exchange, and I wanted to teach just as a hobby. 
I started teaching entrepreneurship. Uh, I don't know if you remember, Brian, you were probably in Colombia back then, 2008, maybe. Uh, the ecosystem was, was, wasn't really very exciting. Uh, I remember we thought about business plans and we, we thought about the business model canvas. You remember that one? Uh, so that was the basis of the course. And it was a great distraction from the day-to-day -day of my retail life, which is uh, hard. When I started teaching back in 2010, I taught a course, a case, about a startup in the U.S. called Kickstarter. And Kickstarter was this crowdfunding platform, rewards-based, that was just gaining traction and, and, and getting a lot of attention in the U.S., And when I saw that model, I, I, I just had to do it here in Mexico. And with a couple of friends, we actually uh, programmed a first version of Fondeadora, which is today a challenger bank, but started back in the day as a crowdfunding platform. And, and it, was, it was like my first stab at, uh, at uh, tech entrepreneurship. I want to double click on something interesting because... You know, if you look at the roots of the early stage LATAM ecosystem, you know, you get a lot of these companies that were inspired by, you know, eBay, in Mali, and there's, there's these kind of like foundational pieces. And you, you look at Viveral. Viveral was uh, inspired by Trulia and Zillow in the U.S., you know, Trulia, a Stan, another Stanford grad uh, in, in Pete Flint. And you've done some co-investing with NFX, and we've had you know, two of the partners on this podcast as well. If you look at the Evolution. I mean, you, you mentioned Fondeadora, which started as a crowdfunding because you got this inspiration. Then it evolved into a challenger bank. How do you look at it from the lens of an investor now? Because it's easy back in 2010 or 11 to just be like, oh, works in the U.S., should work here. What is your mental framework for thinking about things from a local standpoint while looking at the, the global trends? That's, that's a great question. Uh, so replicating business model is is a, a great recipe to start a company. And frankly, it is the way that a lot of emerging ecosystems around the world have, have started. For talent, for example, it's a way to take a big risk while understanding uh, where you're going. You have uh, the initial roadmap. So if you have to resign from a consulting firm or from a bank or from a corporate, you have this roadmap. You can, you can talk to your parents about it and your friends. I'm doing uh, X for Mexico or X for Brazil. So that's, that's one uh, important piece of it. The other important piece of it is that fundraising for, for um, companies that have a clear reference, a successful reference in a developed country is much easier. And when the ecosystem is just starting, investors in the US and from Europe are much more comfortable betting on business models that they understand. And we, we have seen this a lot in emerging markets. Um, copycats, as they call them, raise more money than uh, original companies uh, for uh, developing economies. When the ecosystem just started, when, when the, the smartphone penetration started uh, back in 2012 and 14 and, and maybe a little bit later, the first users of those smartphones looked a lot like the middle class in the U.S. So the first 10 million customers in Mexico, the, the, 
the part of the pyramid that use iPhones, for example, really uh, 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 consumed uh, media and consumed products very much in the same way as the U.S. Uh, middle class. So it made a lot of sense to replicate those business models. Today, as the penetration of services, technologies, smartphones have reached a broader population in developing economies, the way we see it is that it probably makes more sense to replicate companies that are successful in India or in Indonesia or even in Nigeria. So that's how we look at it today. Uh, we're definitely uh, uh, empathic with founders that, that want that uh, roadmap that already exists in order to jump in and take the risk. We, we think that's, that's totally a, a good way to start. But it is important that even if you start with a clear reference, that you're ready to adapt to the local market, to the local realities, and you're ready to iterate as if you were launching a completely new company. Yeah, I think that going back to that whole obsession about the customer and, you know, you can go in with a hypothesis, but when your customer tells you, this is what I need, uh, you need to be hyper in tune with that so that you can, you know, make sure that you're solving a real problem and not just, you know, copying a problem that exists somewhere else because the problem and the nuance of the problem could be different, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and that is something that, that we have learned through time by investing in teams. And, and there is def- definitely a difference between those that are passionate about the problem, those that are obsessed with the consumer or the company experience, uh, and those that are not. It makes a huge difference. Yeah, you mentioned last night that we need more founders that are just absolutely possessed and obsessed with their customer um, you know, talk, talk a little bit more about that. And what are the, what are the, you know, some of the examples maybe that you've seen where you're like, oh, this founder is just like crazy to solve the, the problem for this customer where, where it just became so evident to you um, based on their, their behavior that it was kind of that you felt like it was this is an inevitable uh, outcome. Right. So there's there, there are a couple of, of uh, signals uh, I look for. Uh, the first one is. We love teams that are doing this and starting companies and, and, and building technology to solve problems for, for people they care about. And you can see that. I'm sure, uh, Brian, at Latitude, you can, you can really see uh, when somebody is passionate about, about solving something and about having a positive impact rather than uh, just launching a tech company because it's fun or because you can get uh, quick money and, and quick fame. Uh, so that's that's the first test. The second test is a little bit more subtle. When founders are really uh, customer-centric, in general, when they, they get feedback about the experience, and, and we do test the products a lot, they, they are very open-minded and they're very careful about the details of your experience. So they, they, would, they will ask uh, follow-up questions when you tell them, hey, I tried your product and had this experience and that experience. And they will ask follow-up questions. Uh, the, the best founders will, be, will feel uh, very bad if you tell them about something that uh, got broken in the experience. You know, some just take note and you, you can see that they'll send an email to the 
to the product people, but but others take it personally. You know, they feel bad about it. You know, and and if if she's really passionate about uh, the customer, she will feel bad if if you had a bad experience, and and that is easy to tell. Yeah, that's hard to fake, right? <laughs> you, yeah, exactly. um, either you're kind of like you know losing sleep over it, or you're just like ah, that's that's part of the game, and that's. The reality is, uh, reality is that it's that obsession is what enables you to to really be a problem solver. Now I want to talk about so all VP started. You know, I guess it was like 2012. You're going on a decade, right? Is that is that about yes. right? Yes, sir. So congrats on you know t- ten years is is the fact you're still here. You've raised multiple funds. Uh, you've got a great portfolio. You've had some good exits. Um, when all VP started, if I'm not mistaken. You know, you, your initial proposal or idea was more of an accelerator. Was that something that you had kind of started with, right? Yeah, I mean, the the you're totally right. We we started off by launching an accelerator in January uh, 2012. Uh, the the idea was always to start a venture capital firm, but the accelerator was kind of a necessity. Uh, it was an enhancer that we needed. Uh, to execute on our investment thesis. And that's something that you see in emerging ecosystems around the world, right? So the the first VCs, they not only need to build their firm, but they need to contribute to the building of the ecosystem. So when we started, um, there was little, little deal flow, very few sources of capital, and there was almost no success cases that we could that we could talk about. So we felt the need to build an accelerator just really to build a, a source of deal flow and, and complemented the sources of deal flow that existed at that time, which were not as many. Uh, so there was uh, 500 that had just started. There were some uh, early accelerators, but, but nothing really uh, important. YC wasn't investing uh, abroad. So we had to create that. And, and, and what is great about today is that we can focus solely on our investment practice because the market has solved that. And now there are fantastic organizations, of course, such as Latitude, um, such as YC uh, and others that, that are great sources of the flow. Yeah, at that time you kind of had to build the car and the, and the highway at the same time, right? <laughs> like- exactly. Exactly, and 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 it's it's a it's a feature of a, our emerging markets. Yes, so if you're building a, a startup, sometimes you have to build the infrastructure for the startup in order to be able to deliver on your value proposition, which makes it uh, for one much more difficult to execute in developing economies, but also more exciting and more interesting. Yeah, you build bigger moats when you're able to build kind of this infrastructure layer because. You can't exactly. just pop in. Exactly. I can't remember who said this recently. Someone said we should be thankful that it's like that because otherwise Amazon would control everything. <laughs> so this is actually, it. and I think I've heard you say this before that it's kind of more of a feature rather than, than a bug, right? Where you've got these all these credible challenges to solve. Absolutely, and and interesting because the first company that went through the accelerator program and then received our investment is Carrot. Uh, Carrot was a car sharing company that Jimena Pardo and Diego Solorzano uh, started in 2012. Uh, they basically 
um, created this this company that that would uh, replicate the Zipline Zipcar business model, and they launched a hundred cars all across the city. Uh, they were very they were pioneers, and uh, it was a it was a fantastic experience. Of course, you know that Jimena is now a partner of VP, so it's a it's a, a happy happy story. You know, this is, a, I think this is a sign of an evolving and a maturing ecosystem, right? Founder starts a company, part of the Endeavor network. You know, she she goes through the journey. Then she decides that she's going to go work for a big tech company like Facebook, does her, does her time there. And then she, you know, comes back and says, you know what, this ecosystem is maturing. I want to be part of it. And then, you know, you join forces and you bring on a partner who you had the opportunity to work with you know, on the other side of the table. So there's some affinity, some connection, some rapport that's built, uh, trust that's built over time. So I would say that that is literally a definition of a maturing ecosystem when you have multiple actors that have performed, you know, different, you know, parts of the, the ecosystem on the investing and on the, the operating side uh, kind of coming together. And so it's coming full circle. Absolutely. And, and the other thing that's, that's exciting uh, about today uh, when you think about how everything started is that the, the, the ecosystem is interconnected with uh, other ecosystems. And, and now we, we obviously talk about Mexico because it's, it's booming and it's interesting and it's, and it's one of the, the largest markets. But now we're integrated with the rest of Latin America. The fact that you guys are here, the fact that you, uh, Brian, move here, the fact that uh, Antonia, uh, my other partner, moved from Chile to Mexico and is investing with us and bringing all that experience and, and connections from Chile basically tells you a lot about how the, the ecosystem has become genuinely regional. And that obviously is one of the things that have made all this capital pay attention to the region and bet on the region and have great outcomes. Yeah, if you looked at it from uh, an isolated perspective and you, you know, compare Mexico within, within India... There's just a much larger market in India. But when you look at the aggregate of the region, in some by some accounts, twice as large. And so the fact that there is this opportunity to move you know, across markets and you know, shared language and a shared culture, I would even venture to say that India is like, as a country, has more complexities inside India than Latin America does, you know, given the, the volume of languages. You know, if you're from Mumbai or if you're from Chennai, like you're you're you come from a completely different background and a, and probably a different life philosophy. And if you're if you pop over to Lima from from Ciudad de Mexico, you know you're not finding something completely different. Hey there, are you learning some good lessons in this episode? I hope so. The founders and angel investors we have on our fellowship programs learn things like this throughout the entire experience. In the Explore Fellowship, we help you kick off your next big idea. With the Angel Fellowship, you can expand your impact as a startup investor. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply for our fellowship programs. Now let's get back to the episode. Thanks a lot. Kind of frame it real quick. So the ecosystem has evolved. You see, you know, founders becoming investors, investors in some cases becoming founders, more capital pouring in. If you were to take us back to 10 years ago in Mexico, that moment of, in time in the Mexican startup ecosystem, what's the gap that's been filled in the last decade? What's the primary gap? Is it money? Is it talent? And maybe we can think of something beyond those two 
uh, because those are kind of the obvious answers. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking those off the table for you, but what is it that has happened uh, in the primary shift besides capital and, and talent? So there, there, I would say there are a couple of things um, and, and probably those explain a little bit the, the different pace of development uh, within Latin America between the countries. So one of them is infrastructure. Uh, the infrastructure that Jimena um, could leverage when launching her car sharing was terrible, right? So payment gateways were horrible. They didn't work. Uh, you had to, to depend on banks to help you. And obviously banks weren't very interested in helping startups. The infrastructure even of telecommunications was terrible in order to have the, 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 the platform communicate with the cars. Uh, it, it was, it was awful. You, it was very expensive, uh, unreliable. And you have that in every, every vertical, right? So the, the infrastructure is just so much better. Um, uh, Brian, and, and that is something that, uh, that Brazil had a, had a, a, a was ahead uh, for a long time. When when I used to work at uh, Sumarino, uh, an e-commerce from Brazil, uh, back in 2000, uh, Brazil sold 10 times more than uh, we did in Mexico. And one of the reasons for that is that delivery services worked in Brazil back in 2000. And they had the infrastructure of delivery that worked. And, and we didn't have that in Mexico. So one of the biggest changes uh, are related to the infrastructure. Everything needed to sell online, um, uh, have have uh, media online, advertise. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing is is consumers. Consumers in 2012 were not uh, that digital. Were not sophisticated. It was frankly very very difficult to uh, to launch a, a an innovative service that would would find quick adoption. But that changed because of all the investments that have been done through time uh, by large tech company. So obviously the Uber, for example, is one of the companies that has trained the most con consumers uh, in the region. If Uber hadn't come before Corner Shop, it would have been so much more difficult to, to generate adoption for Corner Shop because when Corner Shop launched back in 2015, Mexicans and Chileans already understood how to have an app where you had your payment methods already embedded and you could open the app and request something that would come to you. And all that training that was accelerated by COVID, obviously, and that involves not only the consumer, but the enterprise and the SME, is obviously a great backdrop to build innovative digital services. So those two things I would say are, are different. And of course, the talent, and of course, the talent that is well-financed changes everything. I, I like it. Uh, I, I had to push you on the question because the easy answer was the, uh, the, the capital yes. and the town. And, uh, you know, we wanted to go a layer deeper. And, and I, you know, I mean, I look at the infrastructure today, even just like as someone who moved to Mexico three months ago, you know, I found my apartment, um, you know, because things are much more digital and easy. Um, and I got my car delivered the day, the, the day after I, I, I got to Mexico. And so 
even just the frictionless consumer piece of being able to move around and the, what that facilitates for 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 people. But I, I I completely agree that this infrastructure layer and it the the fact that consumers have been more trained uh, to use these technologies, there's going to be an onslaught of companies over the next decade that benefit from all this early adoption that's that's created which will you know you know lay that foundation for the for the next generation to use different services and it's hard to make that initial you know move like I, I, I you know you mentioned submarino mercado libre i mean those are the pioneers that you know a close relationship with the you know the founders of mercado libre and they told stories about the struggles there right and so the fact that if you have 2 million internet users in the country uh, it's very difficult to build a meaningful business. That is not the issue anymore. Now we have plenty of people and we have high level of sophistication of, of users. So that is uh, that is super exciting. And, you know, you once talked about this macroeconomic uncertainty as a feature. So I'm going to go back to we talked about the struggles of, you know, uh, and not have everything perfect in the region. And that creates opportunities for businesses. And this macro uncertainty is one of the things that as it relates to the region, it's always had its ups and downs. And, you know, if, if we look at that and you and you look at that as an investor, the natural thing would be like, oh, uncertainty. I don't like it. I like predictability. My money is going to, I'm going to invest a million dollars and it's going to generate X return. And, but why, so why is this macro uncertainty a feature instead of a bug? I mean, the, the, the simple answer is because we've, We've uh, lived uh, in uncertain economies, in uh, fluid political environments for all our history. Uh, so the, the 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 capital and 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 the businesses are used to navigate environments that are are unstable and and that can bring surprises. Um, all of the countries in Latin America have, have gone through uh, periods of high inflation and have had to deal with that as well. Uh, all the countries in the region have gone through periods of high interest rates uh, and all businesses and capital have had to deal with that. So in a way, what, what is happening today in the US and Europe is something that we're pretty used to. So we're, we're uniquely equipped to deal with that as investors, as entrepreneurs, as business people. The only thing that I would say is, is uh, an uncertainty that, that um, is, is very difficult to control and to, and to, to uh, compensate as an investor is related to the exchange rates. So if you're investing in dollars, and 10 years after your first uh, investments or 10 years after deploying the capital, when you return your capital to investors, that, that money, that exchange rate is, is highly depreciated. That's a challenge because that means that you have to provide much higher returns uh, to compensate for the depreciation of the currency. What is amazing in Mexico, Ryan, and I, I'm sure you have noticed, is that the Mexican peso is super stable. It is a very sophisticated and deep market, currency market, the Mexican and US dollar exchange rate. 
It's very stable. And actually, the real and the peso are the only currencies that have actually appreciated against the dollar. So even if there's uncertainty, even if there's inflation, if the exchange rates keep on being stable, that's a great environment for uh, investors. Moreover, the, the only thing that, that we required as VCs is some economic stability. We don't need the economy to grow 10% a year in order to have a successful exit. We just need stability because the logic of tech companies is all about uh, conquering uh, market share. It's all about creating new markets. And when that logic is there, you don't need an environment where the economy is growing. You just need a stable economy. Yeah, you have the tailwinds of all these secular trends, right? If a macro, you know, if the GDP grows only by 1%, it almost doesn't even matter if you're building a tech company that's digitizing an, an industry that's been on paper for, for decades, right? You know, I, I think that that's, that's something that like some global investors maybe just, just don't understand. When you look at the digital transformation index, and my friends over at Atlantico have put together an index where it shows the total value of tech companies as a percentage of GDP. In the U.S., it's like 50%. In Latin America, Spanish-speaking Latin America, it's 1.5%. And so the incremental gains that will happen over the next decade are just, it's incontrovertible that you're going to see massive companies be built just from the fact that that things haven't been digitized yet. So I think that that's, uh, you know, that puts us in a good position, I think, over the next decade. Absolutely. Hey there, you might be thinking about how hard it is to build a venture-backed company. Well, I know firsthand, and I made some mistakes along the way. We lost over $100 million in capital gains taxes because of the company formation mistake that I made. I don't want that to happen to you. That's why we built Latitude Go. We provide an optimal offshore structure for your startup, and we do it in record time. And guess what? It's five times less expensive as other options, and we use the same legal documents as the top-tier law firms. To find out more, check out latitude.com forward slash go. Now, let's get back to the episode. Let's talk about the thesis at, at AllVP. And, you know, you've mentioned before that pre-seed investment is all about team market fit. Expand a little bit more on the concept and explain what you look for at AllVP in terms of team and market. Every time I talk to you and I say, oh, there's a great team I know, the first question you always have is, How's the tech? And, 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 and I've observed that. Um, so I don't mean to be answering my own question, but I, am, but I am leading you a little bit. Talk a little bit more about how you think about teams. Yes. So that question is, is, is very relevant. Obviously, the earlier you invest, the more you have to think about the teams and the better you have to be at, at identifying the, the good teams, right? So, so you guys at Latitude uh, need to be uh, great at that. Uh, we are OVP as well. Uh, there are a few elements of, of team market fit that, that we think a lot about. The first one is we need to see a passion to solve the problem. And, and that passion may, may come from just... Uh, uh, a, a passion to have a positive impact. It may be a personal history. 
some something that you lived through, that you went through, or your family went through, that 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 really triggers you to to work hard, and and basically that passion for for the problem and to solve the problem is essential for startup because startups go through periods of time where everything that you see, everything, every information you receive, every feedback that you have is negative. So the end, the only thing that, that keeps you going is that passion. So you really have to be passionate about, about it. Um, then we, when we bet in, in, in pre-seed uh, teams, in general, we back um, entrepreneurs that have experience building tech companies. Uh, we, we like to, to have second-time, third-time founders that have some track record building startups, attracting capital, attracting talent. That is something that we, that we look for a lot. We definitely like when the, the team or, or members of the team have experience living through the problem they're trying to solve. So if it's a B2B company, maybe you're, you're the client, you were, were the potential client before, so you understand very well the incentives and the problem that the company is facing and that you want to solve. And finally, and, and this is getting back to your point, we, we need the team to, to have one or more members that are, that are fully technical. And, and that has many uh, layers to it. The first one is obviously, if you're going to build a tech company, you, 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 you need to have in the founding team the, the, the people that, that are going to get the upside and are going to be there for the next 10, 20 years. They need to be technical and understand the product they're building. Uh, that's essential. Uh, and, and when we started our first portfolio brand, we almost had no uh, software engineers. Uh, fund two, almost half of our portfolio is uh, was founded by software engineers. Fund three, a majority of our portfolio uh, have software engineers. And it comes down to a couple of things that are very important. The first one is obviously the fact that you understand the product, you can build it, etc. And then there's something else that I've come to learn from, from software engineers and engineers in general, is that they're great learners. You know, engineers in general, they go into a YouTube uh, and they can learn how to, how to code a specific or solve a specific problem that they face in their product. They're, they're learners. They're very avid learners. They're used to learn. And, and a, a startup journey is a, is a journey of learning. And the, the better you are at learning, and I think that you in particular, Brian, are a great entrepreneur because you learn and you're always eager to learn. That is very important. And that is something that we see in software engineers. They love to learn and they learn fast. Yeah, I feel like this is a cheat code, this podcast, right? Because I get to interview all these people and learn from everybody. And then I also get to you know, share it with, with our community. So, so I'm going to recap here. You know, you'd mentioned a handful of things. I think passion. I want to. I want to click on that. Double click on that in a second. Um, experience. Obviously, when you've got a few things under your belt, that's going to give you a competitive advantage when you go out and tackle something, a big challenge of building a company. And then, yeah, obviously the technical piece, which I alluded to at the beginning, because I, you're very consistent in that question when when we talk about companies. Take a look at this passion piece, and I want to give some advice to the founders listening here. 
I think that one thing that great entrepreneurs do when they're talking about why they're building what they're building, they're able to provide very salient and almost like emotionally triggering anecdotes about why they're building what they're building. I mean, I I was talking to a founder the other day and they want to build this kind of, you know, it's a health tech company and, you know, that helps support people with autoimmune disease. And when I kind of peeled back the layers a little bit, I understood that, you know, he he had an autoimmune disease himself. And so the fact that, you know, someone, if if you've suffered from a problem, if you're building a health tech because you want to make hospitals more efficient because your aunt you're very close to suffered from cancer and you, you were right there through the whole process, you need to share these experiences because they communicate your dedication and commitment. I think that what you need to know, Fede, is that like, do you have an unwavering commitment to the problem you're solving? And what is your motivation? Because times are gonna get hard. There's no doubt about that. And if you have this like ultra motivation that goes beyond the average person, you're going to endure and you're going to overcome. And so I think that's something that founders that are really good at telling their stories, um, and of course, it needs to be authentic, right? And it's very clear. I think gr- investors have great bullshit radars. Like they, they, they you know, the good investors do. Uh, they don't get sucked into the story uh, that's just, you know, a, a fabricated manufactured story, you know, and that's part of your job and part of our job uh, in early stage is to identify, is there is there true passion and is this an authentic passion? And so I think I just wanted to kind of highlight that because I think founders, um, they're sitting on gold when they share their their experiences and their motivations. That's why I would say the number one question I would ask a founder if I was looking to make an investment is why are you building what you're building? Absolutely. The why the why is, is essential. And, and it, it comes down to competition as well. I mean, if you're competing, you have five teams, 10 teams competing for the same market, the passionate team has a, has a great chance. And, and I can tell you from, from my own experience, uh, I'm not a founder, I'm not an entrepreneur, but I've, I've built all VP, right, from zero. And we've gone through some, some difficult times. And if I wasn't passionate, if I didn't work super hard, as hard as I worked, I, I don't think we, we, we would be in this position. So uh, definitely relate to that. So you're raising Fund 4, and how much are you expecting to raise, and how many startups do you intend to invest in? Talk a little bit about the, the industries, geographies, and what stages you're looking at. Sure. So we've, we've, uh, we've raised uh, three funds uh, in the past 10 years. We've raised around $120 million. I believe, Brian, we're the only VC in Latin America that has returned more capital than we have raised historically. So as you know, we have a very successful fund too, the Corner Shop Fund that has returned over 3x already in cash to our investors. And we are raising our new fund to continue on our journey and and continue executing behind our strategy. The idea is to continue to invest in pre-seed, seed and series A, invest in around 15 companies. We manage small portfolios, um, Brian, because we like to be very much involved and, and we're very uh, conviction-driven. And there's one thing we're going to do that's pretty new for, for us, uh, for this fund, and you're going to like this, Brian. 
we have reserved 20% for Brazil. Uh, we made our first investment in Brazil this year, uh, around we co-led with uh, NFX uh, to back Clobby, a company uh, based in Rio, and joined uh, great investors from Brazil, Valor, 1VC, and Canary. And don't, don't forget, don't forget Latitude. We invested before all of them. Of course. <laughs> Of course, that's I think our second or third co-investment. Of course, I don't. Think that's right. Yeah. Tom, Tommy, uh, Tommy, Martim um, uh, invested in in, in Clubi, and uh, yeah, they're, they're, they were. I think they were Latitude LF one or two. So very early Latituders. I think I think that they were. I think they were in the first uh, the first fellowship. So um, we're, we're happy. Thank you for the markup. <laughs> I hope it was a disciplined uh, markup and not a crazy markup. But anyhow, no, no, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> the what we what our angle here, Brian, uh, what we intend to do, Jimena, Antonia, and I with our Brazil strategy is we want to find companies that want to expand in Mexico and need a partner to win Mexico. And we think that that angle is something that hasn't been uh, executed as well or as much as I think it needs to be. And the opportunity to back amazing teams from Brazil that can win Mexico, I think there's a, a big upside for our investors there. So we're, we're pretty excited about that. We'll need a lot of your help, Brian, because we're, we're new to it. You know, Fede, we're entering this, you know, this correct, or we've entered this correction, I'd say. Um, you know, the valuations have obviously, since I'd say earlier this year, particularly compared to last year, which was the, the euphoria and the craze. And I remember you tweeting about how we had more happy hours than deals in the summer of, of LATAM, which I, I, I liked because it really, it kind of contrasts like the kind of no nonsense, get down to business uh, mentality that I, I'm seeing now more. Um, and so with the global VC, you know, VCs raising the bar, we've got, you know, investors coming in from, you know, all over. What do you think of, of this this current scenario? Was it something necessary? Was there too much glitz and glam in 2021? And what, what can we learn from that uh, to kind of move forward as we think about this next era of startups being built? Yes, I think it's, uh, thank you for asking that, Brian. I think it's it, it, it was a needed correction. Uh, I think that uh, there were definitely excesses uh, in 2020 and 2021. We just uh, the, the region uh, received suddenly 5x uh, the amount of capital it had raised previously in one year. And obviously, there was a misallocation of capital uh, that, that was a consequence of that. There, were, there was uh, a lack of, I think, uh, respect for the craft of starting companies. Uh, because things got too easy, things seemed too easy. And now we're back to a place that is much better in my sense, which is um, the problems in Latin America are still there. The opportunities to build huge companies is still there. But now we see more, more focused founders, more, more serious uh, investors, um, definitely, uh, the, 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 
if there's any responsibility to be assigned the investors that uh, forced founders to 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 receive as much money as possible as fast as possible we're definitely responsible for it but at the end of the day what we see today is a, a more responsible uh, ecosystem where more rational um, uh, deployment of capital and deployment of talent and There is one thing that is very exciting, Brian, is that all this capital basically helped us uh, create uh, a talent pool that we didn't have uh, before 2020 and 2021. It helped uh, create a, a, a scale of consumers ready to adopt new products and, and, and with a lot of experience Uh, with digital uh, platforms that they, they didn't have. And the fact that so many very sophisticated investors from the US and from, from Asia and Europe came and invested in, in so many startups actually helped us evolve and learn. So 2020 and 2021, for me personally, was amazing. I mean, being on the board... Of, of, of a Sequoia company and being on the board of an Axel company, of a Lightspeed company, uh, has been great learning for me. So we are, we are a more mature ecosystem. We still have solid access to capital. So this year, uh, we're already uh, higher than 2020 in terms of venture capital deployed. We, we have capital to work with. But we're a, we're a more mature ecosystem. So I'm, I'm really, really bullish, Brian. Really bullish. I think that we're going we're gonna to see the start and the scaling up of, of, of Latin American companies this year and next year uh, that are, are, are going to be remembered. I, I, I would concur with that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of was a shock to the system that enabled us to kind of develop you know, kind of new muscles, which, which I think is, you know, I think everyone will benefit from that over the, over the you know, coming years. So for those that don't know, you don't write only on personal profiles. You also lecture at Stanford. We, you know, you mentioned that in the beginning and, you know, you wrote an article that there, you know, something to the effect of how startup culture can thrive in the developing world back in 2017. And you said, how we were going to be able to, to build, be successful if we showed that a young engineer from a small town in Chihuahua would build a superb company or play an important role in a scaling company. So, or even, you know, middle-aged operators can return a lot of the money to their investors. So <laughs> do you think Latin America, you know, already has enough of these cases of success uh, regarding startups or is there still something that's blatantly lacking And how would you define uh, success? So uh, the quick answer is uh, no, we're, we're not there yet, Brian. Uh, our, our ecosystem is still uh, too much of, of, um, of an ecosystem that works for founders that have great credentials, that studied abroad in great universities, and that um, have had opportunities because of, of their families, right? So it's, it's still a very elitist uh, ecosystem. Capital is, is still uh, uh, deployed 
behind teams that have great connections and that that have had the chance because of where they were born and and in what family they were born um, because of that uh, uh, sole fact. So we're we're seeing some some great uh, progress. It's still very 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 far behind what we should be seeing. Capital should be deployed in a much better way and should should go uh, to support the most talented. No, not the most well-connected, but the most talented. Not the best um, diploma, but really the smartest. And we start, start to see that in, in our portfolio, we have a company called Jana, for example, that was started by, by Andrea, who's from Cancun and who, who basically dropped out of, of her university and, and learned to program it on YouTube and started her, her company in mental health uh, from Cancun with very little resources, almost no capital and no access to, to capital. And her app has now been downloaded over 10 million times around the world without spending any money on marketing. So that's a fantastic story. Then you have Sergio, and Ricardo for, from Flink. Sergio is from a, a, a small town in Veracruz. Uh, Ricardo is trained in the public university in UNAM. And they started Flink as a challenger bank, pivoted to a, a trading platform. And now they're the largest uh, online trading, stock trading platform in, in Mexico. So you, you, you start to see those stories, but definitely, definitely not enough. Right. And we have to work on that. And let me tell you a couple of things before uh, I, I, I let you comment. The first one is YC has been amazing. Amazing for that. YC has backed founders because they see talent. They have backed founders that don't have the credentials. They have backed founders that are young, inexperienced, because they have a vision and because they're technically Savvy, so that's a great organization, and I think that Latitude has the potential to have that impact. and And I know that it, it is probably uh, bad to ask you for your leadership when I could take it, but it takes a village, and we need to all of us work to have a, a better uh, allocation of capital, and that would mean that half of that capital will go to female entrepreneurs. And that would mean that more of that capital will go to people that don't have the credentials and weren't born in large cities from wealthy families. It's something we definitely think a lot about at Latitude. And, you know, I, I'm blown away. You know, I just, I, I did an interview the other day with someone who had applied to our fellowship. And I, you know, I like to be close to the founders. And, you know, uh, first generation, you know, uh, college, you know, you know, parents never went to college and spoke perfect English and asked, did you go to a, like an American school? And he said, no, I played a lot of video games as a kid. And to me, like, it's an example of the, you know, just how technology can, you know, you mentioned YouTube and, and the founder of Yana going in. And so, you know, there's, and obviously, English shouldn't be a criterion. That's another challenge. I mean, Gina worked at Duolingo. Um, you know, part of her 
belief and goal at Duolingo is to bring free, free language education to the world uh, because you know that, you know, if you learn English, you can double or triple your income and that can, you know, increase social mobility and economic progress in an entire region. Um, unfortunately, it's still a pretty important criteria for investors, um, but I think that investors will be willing to look beyond that if you've got a great business that you're growing. Um, but there are gaps in the ecosystem, and I think that collectively it's important for us to come together and try to, you know, close those gaps and elevate the next generation. Uh, so it's not just about, you know, kind of elite people that are well-connected that are able to, you know, attract capital and, and build companies. Uh, that's that's going to be, uh, you know, a huge challenge over the next decade, but it's already better than where it was 10 years ago, but we have a long, long way to go. Absolutely. Absolutely, Brian. Count me in for that. Count me in. Okay. Estamos juntos, and I know that we're going to be, uh, you know, partnering here at the, the Vamos Latam Summit, which we will yes. announce shortly. Uh, I'm really excited to have you as, uh, you know, kind of an early partner that's, that's you know, um, you know, going to help uh, galvanize everybody to bring the ecosystem together. You're you play an important role um, here in Mexico in the region, and so I'm really looking forward to doing that with you. And I'd like you to leave us with, you know, what you think uh, is Latin America's biggest triumph and biggest challenge when talking about the development of the startup culture. I know we just highlighted, um, you know, some of those challenges that exist. Um, so maybe let's focus on the triumph. What, what is the, 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 the thing that we can be most proud of so far? Uh, let's end it on a positive note. I mean, there, there are so many, so many things that I could refer to, but there's one that, that I'm really close to and, and that happened uh, last summer, uh, 2021. And when we, we exited um, Corner Shop, over acquired corner shop for $3 billion, which is one of the largest exits in the region. And the founding team, Oscar, Dani, and Chak, um, had created uh, an option plan so that everybody in the company uh, had access to stock, corner shop stock. So when the distribution happened, uh, there were uh, very significant distributions to early employees, and most of them engineers. And so you have you have uh, a few millionaires uh, that that were created out of the the team base of Corner Shop, not the founders, not the investors, but just engineers that believed in the project the early days worked hard, built us an amazing technology. And after a few years of hard work, uh, received a, a big reward, a big financial reward that in some cases was life-changing for not only them, but their families. And to see that happening more and more in the region is going to be amazing. And, and Brian, you and I, are super lucky to be part of that. And we'll be, be part of that. And much more stories like Corner Shop we, we will see in the next few years, for sure. Yeah, wealth is definitely built by, through equity. And, uh, and I think that's something that I've seen, uh, the evolution of more founders, uh, including people in their equity incentive plans. And it's such a positive cycle if we can, you know, if we can continue to, to see that happen. 
because those people are going to go out and they're, they're believers in technology. They're going to either angel invest in their friends. They're going to, you know, maybe start another company um, from all the things they learned at Corner Shop. And so it's really this virtuous cycle that happens. And so I'd say there were at the very early innings or early days, um, you know, primeros minutos del juego para ser más latinoamericano. Um, but, but it's definitely, you know, painting a bright picture. So I think we'll end on that note, uh, full of positivity and hope. And, uh, you know, the, we've got a bright future. And so, um, you know, if there's any indication of the last 10 years, the next 10 years are going to be great. Absolutely, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for being such a, a great uh, ecosystem player for all of us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast with Federico Antoni. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.